The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Let me ask you a question. What is it that good pastors want for their churches? What do good pastors want for their churches? Now, there's so many things we could say to that. So many things that we could say that a pastor might want for his church or a team of pastors might want for their church. I think of what our pastors want for this church. We want things like growth in Christ-likeness, health in discipleship. We want joy and we want life and we want depth, both depth of our, of our knowledge of Scripture and depth in our relationships with one another. We want good marriages, and we want content singles, and we want discipled children. We want people to be committed to prayer and and committed to reading their scriptures. But what does the Apostle John want for this church? What, what, What is his heart for the readers of the letter of 1 John that he shows us here in this passage today? Now, we've said that this book is a book that sort of centers around these concepts of light and love. We've said that God is a God of light and love. Again, at two crucial junctures, John tells us that God is light and that God is love, that he is radiance and he is goodness. He is brightness. He's like the sun who chases away the dark and gives life and warmth to his people. God is love. He is a God who loves from eternity past and will love forever. We also said that John tells us that Jesus' incarnation is like this big, unmistakable, neon demonstration of God's light and love. This unveiling of God's lightliness and loveliness, we might say. Our God who is spirit and who is eternal, he put on skin and bones and flesh at Christmas to come show us what God is like in flesh and blood in real time. And then finally, we said that John wants us to see that because God is a light and love, God's people are to, to be a people of light and love. Those who are called into fellowship and life with God must look like God. We're to be a people who walk as he walks in holiness and love. And then John concludes this letter with this kind of peeling back of the curtain as to what his heart is for his readers. We see his pastoral care for what he wants for the recipients of this letter. Let's look again at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. By the way, we're going to be typically in our fifth Sunday family worship, um, I, I preach a little quicker. So we're, we're going we're to be about 15, 20 minutes here and, and hopefully distill what the Lord has for us in these scriptures. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John writes, I write these things to you, to you who believe, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So what does John want for his readers? What does John, as, as a pastor to these people, what does he want them to possess? Confidence. Assurance. Confidence in the relationship with God and assurance of their stance before God. Remember last week as we looked at the first part of 1 John chapter 5, he told us that eternal life is in Jesus, that Jesus is eternal life in flesh and blood. And he wants his readers to be confident that by trusting in Jesus, they have taken a share of Christ's eternal life, that they have received it. And he says, I want you to know that you have received it. John wants his readers to have confidence and assurance in the relationship with God. And this is why, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. 
John wants his readers to have confidence in their knowledge and experience of God and prayer. Confidence, look at this, that God hears us. Just think about that for a moment. God hears your prayers, Christian. A couple of months ago, I saw this tweet. It was from this atheist account that was intended to sort of troll Christians. If you don't know what trolling is, it's, it's, just a, it's when you kind of purposefully agitate people, right? So this account said something along the lines of, you mean to tell me there are umpteen billions of, of universes and umpteen billions of planets in that universe, and there's umpteen uh, galaxies and Milky Ways, and we're talking about this limitless, ever-expanding universe. You mean to tell me all of that, and there's a God who behind, who's behind it that wants a relationship with you? And of course, the, the brilliant answer to that is, well, yes, that's precisely what Christians say, that the God of all of the umpteens is the God who wants a relationship with you. And what John wants his readers to feel is confidence in that, confidence that by the blood of Jesus, God hears us. And that we can move towards God. We can know God and experience God with confidence. To know that you are loved, that you are kept, and that you can draw near to him. John wants his readers to have confidence to not recoil in fear before God our Father. Think back to chapter 1, how he opens the letter. He says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Oh, and indeed, by the way, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John wants his readers to be assured and confident. He wants us to be assured and confident that we have fellowship with God, that we know God, that we have life in God through Christ, and that we can be confident towards Him in prayer. But God hears us. Think of something that you've done recently where you just lacked confidence. Imagine, for instance, that you were an athlete 15 years ago, and you're not an athlete any longer. Um, and imagine that Seth Knight invites you to go wakeboarding with him. And imagine that as you're wakeboarding with Seth and being tossed to and fro, your face slaps because of your, your, your lack of confidence and your inability to stand upright on the board. And because you're like a baby giraffe trying to navigate this thing, you hit a wave and your face slaps the lake so hard that you chip one of your incisors. Now, that actually took place just a couple of months ago. And Seth is from what I understand, has injured many people wakeboarding and tubing at his house. But if you think about lack of confidence, what kind of characterizes when you, when you step into something new or something that you, you don't feel especially confident in? What, you're trepidatious and you're fearful. And you know what else? You don't particularly enjoy that thing. And how many of us feel a lack of confidence towards God in prayer? Some of us might think that confidence feels presumptuous. We take our lack of confidence as, as a right estimation of God's holiness and otherness. That's what we tell ourselves. Others of us, we don't feel confident. We're very much afraid of approaching God out of, out of a, a, an awareness of our own sinfulness or our creatureliness. Or we, we fear that we're pestering him. We're acutely aware of our unworthiness apart from Christ. And then you hear John say this, and you think, oh no, God doesn't like when I don't feel confident, so I feel even less confidence as I approach him in prayer. But hear John's heart in this passage. This is what he wants for us, Christian. To draw near to God in prayer with confidence and assurance because God hears us. Being confident in that is not presumptuous, it is invited. Listen to another pastor's heart in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is verses 6 and 7 of that chapter. Peter says, 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How does that land on you? We're to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. What kind of God is that? What kind of God invites us to cast our anxieties, big and small, on him because he cares for us? It's the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of light and love, a God in whom we can have confidence, whom we can move towards in prayer. Look at the fruit of this confidence here in verse 16. It's like a, here's what John wants us to do as we move towards God in prayer. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. What John wants us to do with that confidence is to draw near to God, and specifically to pray for others, and even more specifically to pray for our brothers and sisters who we see are entangled in sin. But then in verse 16, he introduces this distinction that's a little bit of a head-scratcher. He says that there's sins that's, that leads to death and that there's sins that do not lead to death. And for many of us, if, we, if we're familiar with the scripture, we've grown up around church, immediately our ears perk up at this idea that there's some sin that leads to death and some sin that doesn't lead to death. Because we think about passages like Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which says what? The wages of sin is death. Or we think about Genesis chapter 3 when God establishes the boundaries in the garden He tells Adam and Eve, if you disobey, you will die. So what what is John saying here by making this distinction? Is he in disagreement with Paul? Is he echoing the serpent's words in the garden? I don't think so. I think there's a careful line we need to walk here as we read this. On the one hand, like John says in chapter 1, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We are to walk in the light as he is in the light. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But on the other hand, what John has already established in chapter 1 is that Christians still sin. In chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, if we say we don't sin, we lie. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is a category in John's mind for Christians who still sin. There's There's a kind of realistic evaluation of the situation. He's like, I've been around Christians long enough. I've followed Jesus long enough. John is probably in his in, in older age at this point. He says, the reality is Christians still sin. And if you're a Christian in the room and you've been around Christians, you can acknowledge that reality. Christians still sin. But I think there's an incredibly important difference in John's mind between the struggle against sin, we might say, what he's talking about in chapter 1, and then what he's talking about here in chapter 5, verse 18, the keeping on in sinning. He says that we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. The sin that doesn't lead to death is the reality of our yet-to-be-redeemed flesh that still has a grip on us. The fact that we are still very much works in progress awaiting on the return of Jesus. And remember, John's a good pastor. Like He wants his readers to have confidence. And so he wants to tread carefully here. He says, Christians, you, you do sin, but Christ forgives And we should pray for our brothers and sisters as they battle against sin. However, he tells us that there is a sin that leads to death. Probably what John has in mind here is a kind of hardness or a resistance to repentance. 
And what's interesting about this passage is he tells us that we are actually not to pray for those folks. At the end of verse 16, he says, what I understand him to be saying is that it's possible for someone to so harden themselves that they cross a line that they cannot come back from. And though we should always pray for those folks, though we should pray for friends who have left the faith, who have hardened themselves against the faith, one commentator said, maybe we shouldn't fancy ourselves more merciful than God. If someone seems to have fallen away and hardened themselves, maybe there is a place, I think John is saying, for ceasing to pray for them. Almost an application of Jesus' teaching to dust the feet off of our shoes and move on. There is a sin that doesn't lead to death. There is the reality that Christians who are yet to be fully redeemed continue to sin. But there is a sin that does lead to death. And that sin, I think what John's telling us, that sin is a resistance of God's grace in Christ. It is unrepentance. It is an unwillingness to embrace the forgiveness and the lordship of Jesus. Isn't that sobering for us? Again, on the one hand, we have the mercy of the Lord Jesus. This Incredible, all-encompassing, all-covering promise of forgiveness in chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse all unrighteousness. We have what John seems to imply here about God's mercy towards our slow growth, that there is sin that does not lead to death, and we should pray for one another. But on the other hand, hear me, sin will kill us. We must take care not to fall away, not to harden ourselves against the things of God, lest we die. And lest by our obstinance we put ourselves beyond the scope of God's redemption. But watch how this ends. Watch this confident note that John lands on in verse 19, verse 20. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Remember, Jesus' coming is this big, unmistakable, neon demonstration of God's light and love. More than that, it's the walking embodiment of God's light and love. And because of that, we can be confident that we have the truth about who God is in Jesus. He says we can be confident that who Jesus reveals God to be, that that is God in fact. We can be confident that we have the truth about who God is in Jesus. Think of John chapter 8, when Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, how long have you been with me and you don't yet understand that to see me is to see the Father? In Jesus, we have the fullness of who God is. In Jesus, we have the clearest, picture-perfect demonstration of God in flesh among us. And what kind of understanding does, does the Son give to us? Who does He show His Father to be? Think of John chapter 2 when He turns water into wine. Think of John chapter 3 when He patiently receives Nicodemus in the middle of the night. I think of John chapter 6 when He feeds the masses and then gives this punchline, I'm the bread of life. Think of John chapter 12, when, when he receives the wasteful anointing of oil from the woman of the city. Then think of John chapter 14, where Jesus says, the moment of my glorification, the great unveiling as to who the God of Israel really is, is the cross. 
Where on the cross, Jesus reveals God to be the God of mercy triumphing over judgment. Where God is glorified and Jesus is magnified and his divine magnificence is most perfectly expressed as a God who judges sin but who forgives sinners. And John says we can have confidence that when we look to Jesus, we see God and that's who God is. And then I love this, the way he lands the plane, the way he finishes this letter in John chapter, one, chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, he says, with such mercy and tenderness, keep away from any small, false, measly Christs. Because anything less than, than who he truly is, is idolatry. You would have confidence with this God. It is found only in who Christ reveals him to be. A God who is merciful. A God who comes to us in compassion and dies for our sins so that we could know him. John says, I want you to have fellowship with us and our God. I want you to walk confidently into that fellowship because of who God is, because of who Jesus has revealed himself to be. And don't, don't allow yourselves, don't, don't, don't give any patience to, don't give any quarter to, any measly lesser gods who don't give you what Christ gives you. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The good news of the gospel is that on the cross, we see the fullness of God. A God who is not indifferent to sin and suffering. A God who is not indifferent to the sin that we commit, to our complicity in the great big fracture and everything. But on the cross, we see a God who offers pardon for those who would repent and accept his forgiveness. This is who God is, and this is God's very heart. This is God's moment of glorification, Jesus tells us. And so like John, what we hope to see as, a, as pastors this year, what we hope to see is confidence is assurance, is a joyful reception of the forgiveness that he offers to us in Christ, that we would walk joyfully in obedience with him, that we would joyfully embrace prayers and fasts and New Year's resolutions for Bible reading, that we would joyfully do all of that because of who God is and who he has shown himself to be in Christ. In the next few moments, we're going we're gonna to pause and just allow the Spirit to move uh, in our time of response. We're just going to create space and just ask the Spirit to speak to us. To, to lead us in how he would have us to respond to what has been said this morning. And then after just a couple of minutes of reflection and, and thinking and, and working in prayer with the Spirit, uh, we're going to stand and sing, Oh, praise the name. Because what name is deserving of praise like Christ's name? There, there is no other name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do come to you in prayer this morning, stepping out on faith based on, on what your word tells us about how we have confidence to draw near in, in Hebrews chapter 10, how we can with full assurance of faith and with clean consciences, how we can move towards you and how we can acknowledge your, your bigness and your glory and your holiness and your otherness. And like Paul says in Romans 11, the depths of your wisdom and knowledge. You are, you are other in a capital O kind of way. We can acknowledge that, but we can also see that you have extended your mercy to us in Jesus. And so we can move towards you believing that, that you love us, that you, you enjoy our movement towards you that, you, that you long to hear us and you long to answer our prayers. God, I do pray that our church would be a church who is fully assured, freed up 
to obey and enjoy you. Not assured in anything except for Jesus, who he has demonstrated you to be and, who he, and, and what he has done for us on the cross in his resurrection. And I pray that our church would be fruitful this year, committed to walking more closely with you, committed towards evangelism, committed towards discipleship, committed towards a better uh, understanding uh, your word, committed towards one another to bearing burdens. And Lord Jesus, we pray that all this would be rooted in a sense of your uh, care for us in the gospel of Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.